TuneIn is the audio platform with something for everyone. News. In order to secure convictions in a court of law, it is essential that we conclusively. Sports. That clock at four. Donchich. The step back three. You bet. Music. You set my world on fire. And even podcasts. Whatever you love, hear it right here. On TuneIn, go to TuneIn.com or download the TuneIn app to start listening. Odyssey celebrates the class of 2024, brought to you by T-Mobile. You can count on T-Mobile to help you stay connected on America's largest 5G network. Thanks for being here this morning, Beth Ann. Thank you so much for having me on the show. It's a pleasure. Oh, absolutely. So tell us what you're looking at. You know, I think of the different stories of, of from bullying to other forms of violence in around and around the schools what are you finding here well i definitely think that as a result of the covid lockdowns and kids being antisocial for so such a long period of time when they came back to school schools started to see an increase in behavioral issues and i think that they've been struggling with how to address these issues um, we see, we talk about violence in Philadelphia all the time. That's sort of commonplace. But what I'm really starting to see is that there, there appears to be a correlation between bullying and behavioral incidents that may not be, be addressed appropriately at the school level. And what the concern is, is that is this really spilling over into the community? And there are a lot of parents that I've talked to across the region that really believe that that's the case. And in fact, you talked to a parent of a high school students in Reading with what happened at Reading High School, where those two students were able to enter a school building with a firearm. Can you talk a little bit about what happened and what parents, such as in that case, are saying to you? Absolutely. I mean, parents are frightened, as you could imagine. I mean, I'm a parent. I have two school-age children. It is your absolute worst nightmare to think about some sort of awful incident happening in your school. And, you know, Reading is a primarily minority uh, school district. And I talked to a member of the Latino community there, and she has been trying to address these issues with her school board and her district for a year. As I mentioned in my article, she had sent an email specifically asking a year ago, you know, what are you doing to protect the 35 doors that we have in and out of our high school? And she received no response. And so she's obviously very, very concerned about the fact that two young men were able to open a door in the high school and let in another uh, young person with a gun. And there are no great answers. And actually, I, I just saw that um, I think it was yesterday there was a student walkout at Reading High School to protest the lack of safe measures for the kids in that community. So we, you know, that's a good thing when they try to, when the, when the kids get involved, the parents get involved, and they try to, you know, bring it to light, shine a light on it. I think that's, that will pressure school officials. There was this other story that was really concerning about this one was Upper Darby, and I'm glad you're writing about this, where the, the parent of a middle, middle school student was you know, describing an incident in early March where his child was physically assaulted by another student during dismissal, unprovoked, and that follow-up. What, what did you get in that one? That was just a case of just bullying? 
Well, yeah, so it was a case of bullying, but I talked with this parent at length about this particular incident, and and it was just so unbelievable to me. So they, at, at, at the time, and I believe that Upper Darby has changed their practices now, but at, at dismissal time, all the kids would be in the cafeteria. And this um, offender, the, the girl who attacked this other girl, basically walked into the cafeteria. She handed her cell phone to another girl, set it to record, and she walked over and unprovoked attacked this poor young woman who had a backpack on her back so she couldn't even defend herself. And they went on to film her basically beating the crap out of this young girl. And then she, even after the fight was broken up and, you know, the the district got involved, this young woman went and put this on social media. And in Upper Darby, I am told that they actually have multiple social media sites that are called Upper Darby Fight Club. And kids upload videos of kids beating each other up. And she was bragging about the fact that she went up and, and beat the crap out of this girl. And it's just, it's just unbelievable to me the behaviors of what's going on with our young people today. And so, and obviously, even though it was not on school grounds, there's still the, the case, the, the Michael Gar case, where he was, you know, this is a 10th grade kid. I have a son this age who was a great kid by all accounts. And that one where he's just walking home, calls mom and dad, I'm headed home on a Friday night and stabs that. That remains a mystery. But I, I'm glad that you, you put that, you know, that you, you were mentioning that one as another school age kid in the suburbs who was murdered and the culture of violence. So what do you think is going on here as somebody, you have a PhD in education and you're also a mom. What do you think is going on here? Well, I think that as I mentioned at the beginning of the show, I do believe that, you know, the kids were home for so long and they forgot what it meant to get along with other kids, to interact with other kids, how to deal with each other as human beings. Um, I think that we really desocialized our children, keeping them locked up. And I think that you know, all the time on screens has really impacted them negatively, that kids don't even know how to talk with each other. They don't know how to work out their differences, their work out their problems, and even little things that, you know, you should just kind of let roll off your back. Everybody takes it to the next level because they're just used to texting or tweeting or whatever it is they're doing. They're not actually having conversations with one another. And so I think that schools have very much struggled with, How do we deal with these behaviors? I wrote an article about two weeks ago for Broad and Liberty on the concept of restorative justice. And restorative justice is a a great concept, and, and, and it focuses on holding people accountable for their behavior, having true consequences for negative behavior, but then also giving being given the opportunity to make amends for the mistakes that they made. Listen, these are all young people. They're all going to make mistakes. This is part of the adolescent process. But if you're not held accountable and you don't have consequences for your behavior, you're going to continue to act this way. And I talk to parents all over the region. I mean, I can't tell you, Dawn, how many parents reach out to me on a weekly basis and the stories are heartbreaking about the bullying that their kids are receiving and them pleading with the school district to please do something about it. And I had, I had a parent in Pendelco just this week reach out 
And they went and, and approached the school board about this pervasive bullying. And, and one of the school board members laughed at them. He sent me a picture of it. Of, and, and it's just, it's disgraceful. And that's not to say that every administrator, every teacher, I honestly think that the teachers are doing the absolute best job that they can do. And I think that they're fed up and disgusted with the behaviors of many of these kids and nothing ever happening to them. So I think that where this all starts is that we have to hold kids accountable for their behaviors and there have to be consequences. And I'm not just saying let's expel everybody for making a mistake. That's not, that is not a practical solution, but there are consequences. If you bully somebody, then you have to make up to that child. You have to have a sincere apology. You have to write a letter. You have to meet with that child and their parents. There are logical consequences for your behavior. If you break something at school or you have a violent incident, then you're going to do community service and you're going to clean up the school, you're going to clean the bathrooms, whatever the case may be. But logical consequences so that people understand, kids understand that this behavior is not acceptable and if I continue to act this way, then there are going to be consequences for what I do. And I just don't think that the school administration is dealing with kids consistently with the bullying and the behavioral incidents. I do want to talk a little bit more about restorative justice, but I want to, because if your name sounds familiar to people, I, I do want to just, you know, um, provoke people's memory a little bit that I've been reporting on your journey, let's say through the pandemic, that you're, you're a Westchester parent, Beth Ann Rossica, and executive director of Back to School PA, that you had, you had been, I think, I think it's fair to say you've been bullied a little bit <laughs> during the pandemic as a mom speaking out for, for kids and as well as a PhD in your position. Can you just update us on, I know there were court rulings and I've been up to, I've been reporting on you for a couple of years now. What happened? Sure. So as I tell my story and, and I, there's another Broad and Liberty article that I talk a little bit more about this <laughs> on the, on the three year, the three year anniversary of school closures. So last March, thir- this past March 13th is that article. But, um, for those who don't know, you know, I was a liberal Democrat for 34 years. I worked in the social services field. I worked with, you know, kids that didn't always have a voice. Um, to be able to speak on behalf of themselves. So I've been advocating for low-income, minority, educationally disadvantaged children for my entire career, and I was a, a very liberal Democrat up until COVID. And when COVID happened, I realized very quickly that these school closures were going to disproportionately impact um, the young people who needed to be in school the most. In Westchester, we have a very large Hispanic community, and those kids were left, many of them were left home alone while their parents still had to go out and work to be able to put food on the table. And I was very upset and very concerned about what was going to happen with these kids. I mean, I saw how difficult the school closures were for my own children. And my husband and I were fortunate enough to be able to work from home. I have a PhD in education. I could help them, but I saw the emotional toll that it was taking on them. So I I could only imagine what was happening for our most vulnerable children across the region. So I began advocating to open schools and, you know, I was definitely uh, bullied and, you know, people called me a racist. They called me, you know, a person that wanted people to die. So, you know, all of those things happened. Um, 
And I didn't care because I knew that the right thing to do was to get schools open. So I advocated very hard for that. And then once schools were open, I advocated very hard to get the masks removed from the kids because I felt like these were parental decisions and not government or school district decisions. And particularly after the Supreme Court of Pennsylvania declared it unconstitutional for the Secretary of Health to order a mask mandate when there was not an emergency declaration in effect, I filed a petition to remove our school board members who had voted to forcibly mask our children. And I was successful for three days um, when the <laughs> judge removed them for a procedural issue. Um, and eventually the case was dismissed by the judge. But I do feel like that case brought a lot of attention and a lot of pressure that our kids were not ever masked again. And so I, I felt like that, that was a win and we were really able to raise a lot of awareness on that issue. Wow. Succinctly, you know, you could have just said, just Google me, right? <laughs> that was succinct, a beautiful description. of. I've been reporting on you, yes, during the pandemic. So I just wanted to, you know, jog everybody's memory to who Dr. Beth Ann Rosica is as a PhD in education. You kind of remind me of somebody else I interview a lot, and that's Cindy Ziff, Voice of the Ocean in New Jersey. Um, there were just, you know, she's somebody who long time, you know, darling of the media because, the you know the democrats loved her everybody loved her she was for the environment and all of a sudden she started questioning just the wind turbines and saying let's just study this and all the whales washing ashore and all of a sudden for the first time in her life she finds herself not so much a darling of the media and being accused of things that nobody ever accused her of the point is sometimes when we look at the environment or education maybe we shouldn't politicize it and i think you've stayed true to your heart and your instinct. And I applaud you for that. You know? Well, th thank you. And I appreciate that. And just to clarify, um, I was the executive director of Back to School PA, where we were successful in supporting over 100 school board members to get elected all across Pennsylvania. That was a nonpartisan political action committee. And I'm really proud of the work that we did there. Back to School PA right now is inactive. I haven't worked with them since last summer, but I have been spending my time working with five amazing candidates in the Westchester area school district to try to get them elected this year to our school board. And I'm doing that on a volunteer basis. And who are those five? Oh, so we have an amazing group of people and you can learn more about them. We have a website called back to basics, wc.com. It's B A C K T O basicswc.com and all five of our candidates are there. Um, we have Nick Spangler and Bob Raffetto in Region 1. We have Amanda Greenberg and Peggy Schmidt in Region 2 and we have Align Oliver in Region 3 and all of their information is up on our site and true to the work that I did at Back to School PA, our, our political action committee Back to Basics Westchester is nonpartisan. We really don't care what political party people are from. We just want them to focus on the issues that we think are important. And those are academic excellence, um, you know, making up time from the COVID lockdowns. We know what the test scores are. We know how much our kids are suffering academically. And we need to really get back to basics and focus on academics. We're also about 
fiscal accountability. The Auditor General in Pennsylvania did an audit of our district and 11 others and found that our school districts were raising taxes unnecessarily. And so that is a big part of our platform is fiscal accountability and transparency. We believe that parents should be partners with the school district in their kids' education. We believe in safety, and we believe in keeping politics out of the classroom. Um, We don't want our kids to know what our teachers' political affiliations are. We don't want them asking the kids what their political affiliation or the parents' political (laughs) affiliations. None of that should be a part of school. We should be teaching kids how to think critically and not what to think. And so that's the idea about back to basics. Let's get back to reading, writing, and arithmetic and getting our kids prepared to be successful adults, whether they go to college or trade school. Um, so we're working really hard um, with, and we've got five great candidates, and we are nonpartisan. One of our candidates is actually a libertarian. I'm a liber- uh, registered libertarian as well. So we're excited to be working with a, a diverse group of people. The final thing I want to go into, and I have full disclosure, one of my teenage sons had, is just closing out his uh, freshman year at Penn State criminology. And so, you know, I proofread his research paper on restorative justice and the practices. And so when you bring that up, I just want to point that out that this is something that is not for, for whatever reason does not seem to be implemented, but is something that is a proven winner. And I, I just wanted you to go into that a little bit more as we think about, especially within our school systems, what a great plan or a practice to say, in other words, if something happens that if the victim is willing willing to face their, let's say, at school, their, their bully. And there's, there are other, you know, it's, it's obviously a supervised event. They can bring people together and ask that victim, what do you see as justice for this person? And hear the apology. It's bringing people together and having that conversation. If the victim of, say, bullying um, is, wants that. But can you explain a little I, bit about about restorative justice, what that looks like? Absolutely. This is what I did for my entire career in human services. And the article that I wrote in Broad and Liberty is on April 21st, and it's called Schools Have to Restore the Original Meaning of Restorative Justice. And what's interesting about this is that if you go to most school districts' websites, they have something about restorative justice. Upper Darby, for example, claims that they're utilizing restorative justice to deal with disciplinary issues. And what I talk about in the article is that the the way that restorative justice was set up is not really what I think is being implemented in schools because there's three key components to restorative justice. Restorative justice recognizes that Just punishing people and sending them to prison or sending them to juvenile detention, it does not necessarily address the root cause of why somebody is committing crimes. That's why we have a revolving door in the criminal justice system. People get arrested, they go to jail, they get out, they they make the same mistakes over and over again. And so the idea of restorative justice was to really look at what could we do to impact the behavior of the offender so that they don't do this again. But the first part of it is about consequences because you can't just say, well, here's a little slap on the wrist. We're going to let you go. We're sorry that, 
you know, your parents are divorced. We're sorry that you grew up in a poor neighborhood. We're sorry that you don't have the same access to a great education that other kids have. All of those things are true. And we know that, you know, kids that come from uh, financially uh, challenged areas uh, are more likely to get involved in the criminal justice system. But you can't just say, like, we're not going to do anything about this because we're sorry about your background. So there are consequences for your behaviors. But then the other side of this is working to make amends with your victim, to understand that when you commit a crime, there's somebody on the other side of that. And whether or not it's this, you know, whether it's a, a property crime that, you know, you break into somebody's house or you uh, destroy property at a school, there is still a victim. And you have to be able to make amends to that person. And to your point, John, what the victim awareness piece does is that it brings together the offender and the victim, and, it's, and they have a conversation where the offender apologizes in a sincere way and talks about, you know, why they're sorry and why this will not happen again and gives the victim an opportunity to ask questions and to increase dialogue. And it, and it really does bring the community together because then forgiveness happens. The victim can, you know, begin to heal as a part of this process. And the offender can know that maybe this person has forgiven me and I can move on knowing that I'm not going to make these mistakes again. Um, so, so the other piece of restorative justice, the third part of this is competency development, because we know that a lot of kids who bully, who make these mistakes, they do have circumstances beyond their control that have led them to this path to make bad decisions. So whether it's anger management classes, life skills uh, training, um, conflict resolution. We give these kids the skills that they need so that they don't make the same bad decisions again. And unless you have all three components of that model, it's not going to work. And so what we see happening, or at least what I think is happening in schools, is that schools are approaching restorative justice as we don't want to we don't want to harshly punish we're not going to expel kids for bad behavior because that doesn't take into account their background and their experiences so we're going to cut them a break but they're not they're not implementing the full model of the victim awareness of the competency development and the consequences there still have to be consequences even within this model and i don't think that that is adequately happening in schools across the region well, Beth Ann Rosica, thank you so much for coming on and, and just sharing with us some of your great work at Broad and Liberty and great work being an involved mom and parent as well as an education expert. Thanks, thanks so much for being here, Dr. Rosica. Well, thank you for having me on the show, John. I really appreciate it. Have a great day. Oh, you too. Hope you can come back and update us on all your great work. Thank you. Tune in is the audio platform with something for everyone. News. In order to secure convictions in a court of law, it is essential that we conclusively sports. Back clock at four. Donchich. The step back three. You bet. Music. You set my world on fire. And even podcasts. Whatever you love, hear it right here on TuneIn. Go to TuneIn.com or download the TuneIn app to start listening. 
Odyssey celebrates the class of 2024. Brought to you by T-Mobile. You can count on T-Mobile to help you stay connected on America's largest 5G network. 